Welcome to Building Biotechs, a podcast by Regronomics Consulting. We've helped over 75 biotech, life science, and venture capital firms strategize, hire, and retain thousands of employees to scale companies that bring life-saving drugs to patients. We speak with those at the forefront of growing biotechs to learn their tactics on building these companies from the ground floor to the C-suite. We're your host, Karina and Allison. Welcome to Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recodomics Consulting. We're your hosts, Karina and Allison, and today we're joined by Adam Thomas, the Chief People Officer at Synlogic. And I know Adam personally, and I can tell you that he has consistently showcased excellent leadership. For over the past six years, he has played an integral role in guiding Synlogic from preclinical development into the clinic and also navigated going public, not to mention the pandemic. Adam's also had extensive experience working in larger companies, including Shire, S. C. Johnson and Pfizer. So please join us as we dive into some insights with Adam about his experiences and the nuanced art of leading in the biotech domain. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thanks for having me, Karina. Yeah. So first of all, we like to ask all of our guests, what did you want to be when you were seven years old? And what are you now? And how did you get there? When I was sometime around the age of seven, I can't say it was definitely seven years old. I really wanted to be a larger. I've not knew one. It was just something I really wanted to do. So sometime around seven, as a young child, I wanted to be a, a lumberjack. Sadly, that is not the career path I chose. Although, who knows, maybe in the future, I'll go back to being a, a lumberjack. But instead, I studied law undergraduate. I did a master's in HR straight out of, uh, out of law. I decided law, a career in law wasn't for me, but went into a master's in HR. Worked for an HR consultancy for a couple of years in London, and then moved to join Pfizer in Kent in the UK, which is just south of London. And I worked about five years in uh, in Kent. And then the opportunity came to move to the States. So I moved to the States with Pfizer, which was great. I was originally posted here for two years with the goal of going home. And now that's 20 plus years ago and I'm still here. So it shows that the plans you have can change. But I worked for Pfizer in the US for about seven years before doing an MBA. After I graduated my MBA, I ended up leaving Pfizer and joined SC Johnson, where I was the head of HR for the R&D division of S.C. Johnson, the consumer products company. And I was living over in Milwaukee and working in Racine, Wisconsin. And then after that, my wife and I had our first child, decided we wanted to move back to the East Coast. And I got a job as the head of HR for R&D at, at Shire. I had a fantastic run for about four years at Shire. And then one day I got a phone call to see whether I'd be interested in joining Synlogic. And that was six years ago and here I am. So that's kind of my potted career history in a 30-second snippet. That's amazing. So you kind of stuck here in the US. Do you think that that's going to be where you stay? So I now have two kids and your priorities change a little bit. And I will never say never about going home. But I think as the years go by, it's increasingly unlikely. I think the opportunities here, both personally, professionally, career-wise, are significantly bigger because it's a bigger country than, than Scotland. And once you've kind of settled and put down roots and had kids and stuff like that, it's increasingly unlikely. But I refuse to say I'm never going home because that sounds like too big a step to make. Yeah. So side note, my husband is Scottish and he is a lumberjack. So you should definitely, if you ever just want to come and he has a sawmill and you can cut down a tree or whatever. <laughs> well, I'd be worried I'd chop off my arm or something. I'm worried about that all the time. <laughs> that is great. Well, Adam, I have a question for you to kind of start us off as well. You know, those were big companies. A lot of your experience coming out of school, you know, SC Johnson, Pfizer. Is Synlogic the smallest company that, you know, initially started working at? And what was that like joining such a small company after coming out of these big, massive organizations? 
Sometimes Joe Gallas says, so Pfizer was between 80,000 and 150,000 when I worked there, depending on the day. SC Johnson was about 11,000. Shire was 5,000 when I joined, went up to 22,000 after we acquired back Salter, but suddenly 5,000 and then some logic was 42. So I've been going to progressively smaller companies. After 42, I'm not sure where I go next. It's probably to set myself up as a, an individual contributor somewhere, just run my own business or something, because you can't get much smaller than, than 42. But yeah, Synlogic was certainly the smallest company I joined at the time that I joined. I think that there are many differences which we can, can explore. And certainly, I found both big companies and small companies be very rewarding experiences. Yeah, I'd love to dig into that a little bit. So some of the experiences that you took from those larger companies, you know, how have those translated over into Synlogic? But what else have you, have you had to learn on the fly? Let me just contrast. Pfizer, I had a fantastic 12 years at Pfizer. Loved working there. Great company, great people. You get exposed to so much because there are so many people doing so much stuff. As a you know, relatively young professional going into Pfizer, I just learned a ton from incredibly smart people doing those of different things. There is a department for everything at Pfizer, almost sort of process for everything. And some of those processes, many of the processes are really good practices, best practices. So as an opportunity to learn, it was absolutely fantastic. So that's, a, that's like what people will often tell you is that sometimes in a big company, you don't necessarily feel your contribution makes a huge difference on the company as a whole. And that can be true in 150,000 people, you can be a small part in that big machine. So you contrast that to some logic, which when I joined had very few or no processes systems. You're having to figure things out for yourself, make things up as you go. But certainly there's a far more direct correlation between your contribution and the overall success of the company, particularly if you're at a similar, more senior level. So I think there's pros and cons to, to each. I think that you, you you have different experiences in each, and depending on what you're looking to learn and what you're looking to do, I think both can be great career opportunities, but you should recognize that they're, that they're so many gifts. It must be interesting to get in, you know, such an early stage. And I mean, you're hands-on responsible for building the culture. A lot of what Synlogic is today, I'm sure, is because of things that you put into place and different initiatives that you started to drive that culture and to build the team that, you know, is what Synlogic is today. How has that gone? What are some initiatives you've launched or, you know, experiences you've had that you've been particularly proud of that have really kind of made Synlogic the company that it is today? I mean, first, I would acknowledge those people who came before me as well, Alison. The organization, even at 42 people, there's already culture that exists. You know, there's some great people and great work has happened before me. So I appreciate you saying I've helped influence it, but there was certainly a lot of stuff done before I kind of got here. One of the things that was done before I got here was to really try to define the culture under two headings. We're called Synlogic, and we talk about human logic and science logic. And human logic, we have official values, but you know, basically human logic is collaborate well, get on well with people, and be supportive of each other. And science logic is get stuff done, deliver, achieve results, take on innovative science, and drive forward. And those two pillars were defined before I got here, but have kind of been central to what we've tried to do every step along the way, is balance that delivery and the science side with the people side and being supportive of each other and that type of thing. I give a lot of credit to those people who came before me that did those. Since then, we've kind of built on those things. We try and have some fun here. We try and have a, a pretty robust culture. And so one of the things that also predated me was there was lots of Star Wars type memorabilia around the office. I can go into why, but anyway, we have all our conference rooms, the Star Wars planets. We've stormtrooper helmets over the office and that type of thing. We've kind of built on that. So our, every year we do a, something we call the Star Awards, which the writing looks a bit like Star Wars where we have Oscar-like uh, trophies, which are the Star Wars figurines, 
which relate to each of our values. But we pick a vault from across the company around who should get these awards. And it's meant to be a bit of fun, but it also reinforces some of the great work that people have done throughout the course of the year. So that kind of taking some things which are hallmarks of the culture and then trying to build down a bit of fun to over some of the things we, we've done. I think on the team side, we spend a lot of time getting teams together and supporting teams, which has been great. And so, you know, I think some of those things are elements that have kind of gone forward and carried through and will hopefully carry through beyond me as well. We give these statues out. We get them back every year. We engrave a back on them so you can see the previous winners from all the different games. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> that is so fun. Something I've always really loved about SinLogic too is you're really tightly tied to the community. I'm always seeing you posting about different initiatives that SinLogic is supporting. And, you know, we have supported the same initiatives at times, our two different companies like the Gloucester Academy. So tell me about how that has also influenced your culture. I think it's really important to play your part as an individual and an organization in whatever the community is that you define. Different companies define their community differently. We don't work in oncology, as we're not really focused on the American Cancer Society, but that's a fantastic organization. And you know, many oncology companies will view that as their community. So we're engaged with things like the PKU Alliance because our lead asset is for a disease called PKU. And we've supported them through sponsorships and participation and attending events and that type of thing. We support local schools here. We have interns that come in from, there's a high school about 400 yards away from our office. We have interns come in from there and we give them speaking engagements and that type of thing. Karina mentioned the Gorsa Biotech Academy. It's a fantastic program. I would encourage everyone to check it out. They generate a great bunch of interns every year who go on, become a great bunch of hires. And we've brought in a number of people who otherwise might not have transitioned into biotech who've made a significant contribution to the organization here. So that's great. On a personal side, I serve on a couple of boards, which is very rewarding and hopefully is a you know personal thing to give back to the community as well. But I do think it plays a part and it also helps just reinforce the importance of doing what you're doing. I think one of the, if you speak to any biotech company, having patience in speak is I think one of the most inspiring and rewarding thing you can do. And we've been fortunate to have a great number of patient speakers for the diseases that we work in. And it really does help connect you to why you're doing something. Even from the earliest stage, you know, you could be working on the earliest preclinical program, but if you can see that connection to the patients, it really kind of, this is why you do it, this is why you turn up every day, and it can really help connect you to the ultimate user of your product, should you be fortunate enough to, to get a product market. So given your long runway with SynLogic, can you share how things have changed? Because you have been, you were there before the pandemic, you were there during the pandemic, now we're after the pandemic. And I do remember some of the challenges with, you know, being a clinical stage company at that time and needing people to be in the office. How has that evolved for you? I think the pandemic is probably set from the normal company evolution that would happen. You're a very different company if you're a late clinical company to a early preclinical company. Those two things are very, very different. The people you have are different. The programs, the focus, the requirements for compliance and lots of different things are very different than one versus the other. It's also the case being a private company to a public company has different challenges as well. So when you're private, you have a lot more flexibility than when you have the quarterly reporting schedule required of a, of a public company. And so all of those things would have changed. It's a logical my tenure here naturally. The pandemic was an interesting time for sure for everybody and lots of people cope with it in, in different kind of ways and looking back it's amazing some of the things that happened so i mean one of the things that we did was we were very keen we had to keep lab operations going and so we needed people to come in and continue to work on site even at a time when we didn't know 
we were trying to make it as safe as possible, but nobody really knew the direction that this was going to go. And so we split the company in half. We had a gold team and a blue team. The gold team was C3PO and the blue team was R2D2 to stick with the Star Wars theme, Alison, that I know you liked. And we split shifts. And so one day one group would come in, another day another group would come in, and neither group would be able to meet. We had to try and keep them completely separate because we didn't want to have a situation where we have infection in one side and that infects all the others. And the staff here did a phenomenal job of understanding why we were doing what we were doing and rising to the occasion. The productivity was so impressive of people coming in, really focused, knowing that rather than five days in a row in the lab, they would have two or three, depending on where they were at the schedule. And people just cranked it out. We got so much done over that period. That's just a testament to the staff. Looking back though, splitting your company in two and nobody meeting is just crazy. It's a crazy thing to do. But yeah, we, we did it. Even in the earlier in the pandemic, we couldn't find any disinfectant products, cleaning products for love and all money. And we were tapping everybody on network and, and all this kind of stuff. And one day it was about 11 o'clock at night and I, I was just running out of people to call. I called somebody and they said the famous words of, I think I know a guy in Detroit. And we ended up getting cleaning products from some guy in Detroit who had shipped them in from China somehow, who knows how. But it carried us through because it was at a time when you were, you know, washing your shopping, you were bringing back from the supermarket, that type of thing. We had nothing to clean the office with, and we finally managed to get this shipment in at some ridiculous cost. And again, the fact that some guy in Detroit saved us and kept us operating is just incredible. Yeah, looking back, that's been a bit of an odd one. Rolling forward to now, though, I think many biotech companies, and we're no different here, are still kind of working through what does hybrid working mean? when you have a lab office environment, because the lab staff need to be here many days. You can give as much flexibility, but most people don't have a lab in the garage at home. So they need to do a phenomenal job and come in and drive that. But maybe some of the GNA staff, clinical staff are in a different world. So how do you create the right balance of in-person working and remote working in a hybrid environment? And I think we're still trying to figure it out. And it took three or four years for us to get into this through the pandemic, and it will probably take three or four years to really find our optimal operating model because things kind of you know things keep changing as well in the world around us. And so I think we're all still learning a bit around hybrid work and that type of thing. We've heard that a lot from our clients as well. We have seen that there's a bit of a, an inequity, if you will, between the people who are higher in the company, possibly the more senior folks who don't need to be in the lab anymore and their expectations around having to go in. And so that's certainly a balancing act there. You're right in what you say, Karina. There's also between functions as well. Your know, clinical is a very different beast from uh, research, for example. And many clinical roles are now done remotely, primarily remotely. Reg affairs is one where lots of people aren't relocating for jobs anymore. They are, they are where they are and they'll, they'll work from there in many cases. How you build a cohesive organization when you've got these different things, I think many companies are figuring it out. Funnily, the people I know that are happiest right now, I think, with their working model, are typically those people who are either all lab or all virtual, you know, they're clinical only kind of thing. And it's those those of us who are balancing many different things are the ones who are still kind of figuring out. Because all lab's easy, everyone's in, so you know, you're flexible working, but by and large, most people are in every day. And if you're a truly virtual company, it's again, you consistency, but then everyone in the middle is still kind of figuring out. Absolutely. Are you finding that it's a difficult balance for creating the culture that once existed with this hybrid workforce? I think there are certainly things which are more challenging. We had a celebration today. We had a cake in the office. Very simple to do. It was a small celebration. 
you know, half the people don't get to celebrate together because they, it was a day they're not in or they're working remotely or the, all that kind of stuff. doesn't mean you shouldn't do the cake, but you also need to find a way to bring people together. We started what we call Hub Weeks, where four times a year we'll try and bring everyone together no matter where they are. And we found those are a good way of kind of reinforcing the culture and getting teams together and making sure that at least there's some touch points during the course of the year where, where people do come together and you get everyone together. But certainly we've not figured everything out yet for sure. I like that. Hub Weeks, maybe we should look into that, Alison. Certainly we try to do things. We uh, send pancake making tips out to people's houses. We tried to do virtual events. Many people did similar types of things. We sent cookies out. We had virtual happy hours and a bunch of other things. We did try to keep people connected. Some of those worked better than others. We rapidly found that what worked in a physical world did work in a virtual world, and so we had to adjust the things. But yeah, it was a challenging time, and I think we're glad that hopefully we're largely through the back of it, although I don't think we're completely through COVID yet, unfortunately, and it's something which may rear its ugly head again at some stage. I agree with that. And with any luck, at least we'll all go into it with a little bit of an idea of how to shift rapidly to bringing people to work from home. I mean, we've been a remote company since the beginning days, but the number of calls we got from clients saying, how do you do this? What do I do? Like, how do I get the computers home? What do we, how do we figure it out? I mean, it was, it was a terrible time, but I do like that they built it so the culture came home. They stayed on their team page with their CPO names. That's cute. I do think that hybrid work in some format is here to stay. Whether it's in its current format is one that I would question. I think there's been this pattern that a number of people have settled into where companies want people in three days and employees are willing to be there too. And there's either an open war about which one of those is the right position or there is something, you know, everyone is just ignoring it. Hopefully the other person will give up. If that's where we stand, it's not sustainable longer term. And so I think we'll probably come, there might be some other version of this where we settle into some other different path. But it's going to take a bit of time, I think, because we're still working through different things. And, you know, it's there. I hope there's not, but if there's a big recession around the corner, that will change things again. And that's another interesting thing, right? Biotech really as a whole is kind of volatile. I feel like we're always kind of going, it's always like full-blown, everything's going great, or, oh, it's maybe a recession, or, oh, the venture capital. And, you know, we've seen that in the past, what, three years, it's just been up and downs. And so I think as someone who leaves teams, that's also very challenging, especially when you are, well, I'll let you answer the question. I guess, is it, have you experienced those challenges being harder in large organization or are they harder in a smaller organization to kind of navigate through and implement the changes and adapt to the ever-changing markets that we see? I think there is in general, you know, businesses cycle in general. I think right now for biotechs, particularly clinical stage biotechs like us, is an exceptionally challenging time. We have lived through what was probably, a, people will tell you was a bubble. They will say there was potentially too many things funded in biotech that maybe shouldn't have been and, and capital was pretty easy to come by. We're now definitely in a contraction and it's a very, very tough time. A number of our peer companies have unfortunately shut their doors or merged or disappeared. And it's just tragic to see some of the great science they were working on no longer being pursued. And it's tragic to see some great people we had no longer working in those companies. I think it's very fortunate that the market right now has been reasonably robust. So people are landing in other jobs, which is great. But there have been a ton of different company failures. And it's going to change the way that biotech works, I think. I was speaking to somebody who works on the benefits side just the other day, and they were describing a couple of years ago as a benefits arms race, was the phrase that they used, whereby everyone was just trying to out to each other on whatever benefits they could offer. 
And in their minds, it was getting a bit crazy and it was ridiculous. And some of the things were just completely over the top. I think those days have kind of gone a little bit. I think there's far more value focus and far more cost focus in biotech right now, in many biotechs right now, but probably not universal. And so I think some of the changes that are happening right now are fundamental and not everyone's going to survive through this. So I think that that's a challenge. In a bigger company, you typically are less worried about your organization going completely out of business. You may be worried of being acquired. And then what happens post-acquisition? I worked on the Pfizer side, so we acquired a number of companies, but you know, I have a number of colleagues who knew that they might be acquired at some stage, and there are some concerns about that. But you don't have the same concern that tomorrow we're not going to exist. That's a different type of, type of thing. And we and many of our peers really have one lead asset that defines the success of the company, and that will be successful or fail. You know, whether that succeeds or fails defines whether the company succeeds or fails. When I was at Pfizer, we had a hundred things in the clinic, and Shire had 50, whatever. If one doesn't work, it's less of a cataclysmic uh, event. I think there are different profiles to why you may want to work in one versus another, and what it means to work in one versus another. Certainly, the we may not exist tomorrow is very different in a big company. We remember that arms race well. <laughs> All right. So as Synlogic has progressed through its life cycle, I've noticed that you have cultured leadership from within a number of times that I've observed. And so I'm just curious, how do you identify those future leaders and what do you do to you know, help them to nurture and evolve as leaders? Mostly, thank you for noticing, Karina. It's something that you can never do enough of is develop people. And we've had a number of successes and I'm sure there are a number of people who've moved to different roles different companies who would say that we didn't do enough to develop them. So, and I think that is a fair thing, right? Could, in a small company, there's only a certain number of opportunities. And so, you know, as, as much as you try and invest in everybody, you can't necessarily do so. You mentioned about how do you identify people? I think some of it is that people will identify themselves. You will see somebody who is already leading teams informally before they're formally doing, assigned to do that. You will know somebody who delivers results. As part of our science logic kind of mantra is, you know, you need to get shit done and you need to be somebody who delivers results. You'll know the person who, who does that. So oftentimes you will identify people. You then need to have the right opportunity at the right time. And either you need to create that or it needs to open up. So some of it is, is timing wise. And then you know, we, we've invested in coaching and training and development and lots of other things. We've had some great partnerships. The state through the Commonwealth Corporation have given us a couple of training grants that we've invested. We work with a coaching company called ASAP. We'll be very good. There are a bunch of different things we've done, but ultimately it comes down to on-the-job experience in many cases and giving people the opportunity and put them in a stretch role and supporting them in that and then seeing them flourish in that position. And we've been pretty fortunate that most of the time, I think all the times where we've made somebody a stretch assignment and put somebody in a post, they've risen to the challenge and they've done a phenomenal job for us, which is great. And so... I think in a small company, you have to recognize that there's not an unlimited number of opportunities. And so when those open up, try and see as best you can if you can sit the, the bill. There's also some limitation to that. The new opportunities that open as you go from research to development, for example, are typically different skills and so require different people. And we've had a few people move from research into development or other things like that. But it is a harder shift because you do need to buy experience at different times. And so I think you have to strike the right balance. Awesome. Is there an anecdote of a time when you did nurture one of those leaders and they ended up being really impactful in the company? No pressure if there isn't, but I'm just curious if there is a time that you could describe like that. I can think of a few times without naming names. The one that springs to mind 
is I think we had to offer somebody a job about three times because they kept saying they weren't ready for it. And we were convinced that they were. And in the end, it was a, a kind of, no, no, we really think you could do this and you do a phenomenal job. And they just knocked out of the park every single day. We've never once regretted making that decision. And so I think there is oftentimes gender difference and a reluctance by female colleagues to put themselves in a position they don't think they're qualified for. Whereas oftentimes a male colleague may be more confident and say, I'm going to do it. That again, is not a universal thing, but just in, in terms of patterns. And so I think I would encourage anybody who listens to this to not hold yourself back. If a company says you're ready, give it a shot. You'll do a great job. You'll, you'll learn a lot in the first few months and you might make some mistakes. But uh, you know, if the only thing holding you back is you, then it probably tells you you're ready. You should do it. We certainly have one, if not other examples where that has been the case for sure. And that's fantastic advice. I hope that is taken to heart by our listeners. All right. So how did SynLogic's mission and vision adapt and pivot during the phases of your journey here, especially kind of during that IPO stage? We actually didn't go public through an IPO. We went uh, public through a reverse merger, but that's a technical uh, detail that we can cover. The fundamental place to start when looking at SynLogic and other companies like us is we're a platform company. Not every biotech is a platform company. Some companies focus products and lots of different things. Many will have some kind of unique platform. And ours is that we engineer living bacteria as biotherapy. So that's basically, that's why the company was founded and that's all we've done. And what will happen in your infancy as a platform company is there's so many different places you could apply your platform that you go very, very broad. And we did exactly that. We've worked on immuno-oncology. We've taken immuno-oncology programs into the clinic. We've worked on rare metabolic diseases, other metabolic diseases. We've toyed with the idea of, do we become some kind of consumer products company? Lots of different things you could do with your platform. At some stage, you need to back an idea and focus because you can't do everything. You just don't, you don't have the capital to move everything forward. And so we went pretty broad. We went in different places. We were pursuing both metabolic and immuno-oncology programs at the time. And it became apparent that, the, that the, the initial application for our platform would be better suited to metabolic programs and rare metabolic therapeutics for gut-based diseases. And having made that decision, everything then aligned and fell into place. Unfortunately, it meant some people left because they were more on the oncology side of things and no longer invested in the mission. But it allowed us to double down and really build a core expertise in rare metabolic oral therapeutics for gut-based diseases. And that's really what we've developed. And that has then catapulted us forward to a stage where we're in phase three now for our lead asset. We have a number of other things behind. If our PKU lead asset is successful, we can rapidly pull some other things through. But it really was that pivot from breadth to focus, I think, was a key kind of strategic point. I'm sure I'd love to see us back in oncology if we're wildly successful and we can raise all the money in the world. I mean, that would be great. But I think most platform companies at some point have to make that decision about what do you focus on and when do you focus. And I think that's a key inflection point for us as a company and many companies like it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can we touch on that reverse merger? Of course. I'm curious about that. I didn't actually know that. Yes. So we were looking at going public and there are, obviously there's more than one way to go public. One is through a traditional IPO process. You're never 100% sure when you're planning it what the IPO market will be like. And so there is some risk that when you want to go public through an IPO, you're in a, a situation like right now where the market is cooled off. It's very, very hard to, to, to get through an IPO process. There will be a number of companies who were thinking about going public in the second half of 2023 who can no longer do it. 
And so we had the opportunity to, to go through a reverse merger with a company called Myrna Therapeutics. Myrna had had a, a clinical failure in their lead asset, I think with about 50 million at the bank, but they didn't really have enough money to restart and drag things through. And so what they did was they auctioned off their, their listing and we were fortunate enough to take that listing, take a couple of their board members, take their investors. We actually didn't take any of their staff or anything like that. We moved, they were a shell and we kind of reverse merged into the shell. It is a, a quicker and easier way to go public, which is great. One of the things you miss out on, unfortunately, is you don't do the big IPO roadshow that most companies will do going through an IPO when you really market the company and tell the story and place your company in the consciousness of investors and the investment community. And so one of the, the downsides of, of the reverse merger process is you then have to work a lot harder on doing those things after you're public, but you don't necessarily have exactly the same opportunity as an IPO would have given you. So there are pros and cons as with all these things, pros and cons of each. It's how we went public. We've been public for a number of years now. That has, again, pros and cons uh, in terms of public versus private. But we're happy being public. But that's the story of how we went uh, work public. That's fascinating. Now, you would have been pretty prominent on that roadshow. Um, so do you feel like you had missed out on getting out in front of some folks and talking about the culture and build? I think you, get, you give me way too much credit for you. DFOs do roadshows. CHROs are far less prominent than, than that. So I like to think I'd have played a supporting role, but I think that CEO, CFO are the, are the prominent ones of bringing that one home. They certainly are, but I've seen several CHROs out on the road talking about the build and how important the culture is. So I think you're underselling yourself. Well, thank you very much. They would have wanted you to weigh in there. How are you now leveraging, since you did go public through this reverse merger, how are you now finding sources of capital and things like that and without that clout? We're a publicly traded company. And so we follow this, the same types of processes as any other public company. At this stage, how we went public is immaterial. It was seven years ago or so. It's more around, you know, how you then run in business. We'll do the same non-deal roadshows. We'll go out, speak to investors. We're regularly in touch with different people about, uh, you know, investing in the company. We're frequently telling the story at banking conferences. We're out discussing things with small investors, large investors. There's lots of different uh, conversations going. And then hopefully at the right point in time, we trigger a process by which you raise money, be it a a private placement, a pipe, or whatever else, you know, there's, there's different ways of, of doing it. We're very hopeful that we continue to have positive feedback from the investment community and people continue to back the story. Excellent. Yeah. And obviously, positive clinical indications help that. Absolutely. I have a question about the internal um, internal operations of SynLogic. And as you are, as things change, you know, funding wise or clinical wise or whatever information you need to share. How do you do your internal communication so that your team feels that everyone knows what they need to know, they know how to continue functioning, what their impact on their job will be? I know, you know, companies do daily stand-ups, they do all-hands meetings, they do newsletters. What have you found that's really effective and that your team responds well to when you are in a period of time where you're sharing lots of information that does have a material impact on your team? It's a great question, Alan. I've never been in a company where when you do an employee survey, communications are rated as one of the highest items. I Maybe I've just worked at the wrong companies, but I think the one of the challenges is always that communications could be better from the recipient's point of view, right? There's always more, something could have been shared sooner or in a different way or in a, you know, from a different person or whatever else. It's always a journey. It's always a work in progress. We've had a regular all-company meeting that's called Commensal. We work with bacteria, so Commensal is both breaking bread, but also you know, bacterial reference. 
we used to do on a weekly basis. We've now gone to kind of every other week, um, given that the you know it was less kind of frequent news that we needed to convey. But it's still a good chance to get people together. For those people who are in the office, you know, we do a breakfast and that type of thing. But it's a chance to just update people on the progress and things that are happening within the company. We also do regular, call them the Friday notes. But for something that's a bit more reflective, we have a member of the team here who writes a, a note to either celebrate success or acknowledge achievements or even just inform people with what's going on. Those have been pretty well received, particularly during the pandemic. Those were well received when people were at home and had a bit more time on their hands. And certainly we're reading those. We have a Slack, a system called Slack. Many companies use Teams, we use Slack. So for quick hits and operational updates, there's lots of uh, opportunity to share informal updates and post photos of your kids and that type of thing. We, uh, we have a summer snaps competition ongoing at the moment where people are posting different beach photos and a bunch of other things to, to show what they've been up to in the summer. But that kind of helps build the community, but it's also an important way of conveying information. We also try and cascade things out through managers and teams to make sure people have the information that they need. And we have SharePoints and the like for kind of static information and, and the like. So there are lots of things that we, we do. Whether they are all successful depends on your perspective in life. But we certainly try to keep, keep people informed and try to be transparent. I think one of the differences between private and public, one of the big differences that we found between private and public is when you're private, you can pretty much share anything with anybody at any time internally. There's a lot, a lot of freedom. Whereas when you're public, you suddenly have material non-public information, which is different. And there's a certain timing and cadence to where it can be released. And so certainly in the early days of being a public company, we tried hard to communicate why we were sharing information at the time in the way that we did. You know, sometimes you have to share it concurrently with sharing with the public. And it wasn't always well-received or well-understood. We were doing things for a reason. I think we, you know, over time, people will now understand that. But certainly, if it's a young company about to go public, really kind of setting the, the expectations on communications of what can be shared when, I think would be uh, for sure. Thank you. I was hoping you'd have the silver bullet answer to that one about how to have great communication across the board. But yeah, I think it is a constant battle. It's a constant struggle. And as technology evolves and it changes so frequently too, you know, like we're on Slack as well. Is Slack the best option? Is it X, Y, Z? And, you know, so many options out there. There used to be a thing at home where the people who smoked would have all of the best information, the quickest information. And so your communication was always, could you communicate faster than the smokers? Because all the smokers would congregate outside the building and it was very cross-functional, cross-departmental. So if department A had something happening, department B would find out through the smoking channels before anything else happened. And so I think that's the test is, can you communicate faster than the smokers? Because it was a very, very efficient way of communication, for sure. That's hilarious. I was raised by my grandma and um, she said that she was a smoker just because she needed to know what was going on. She said that that was the fastest way to know everything in the whole town. I can well imagine. That's so funny. All right. So, you know, based on all of your insights at SynLogic and the bigger companies, is there anything that you want to leave people with if they are thinking about jumping into biotech? Any career advice for our listeners who are maybe making that jump now? I think biotech in general offers a fantastic career choice. And I would encourage everyone who's interested in looking seriously at it. I think there's been so much written over the last few decades about purpose-driven organizations and how you've got to find a company with a purpose. Every company in biotech has a purpose. We're all trying to help people and we're trying to treat diseases and there's no nobler purpose than that. 
And so if you're looking for something that you can feel good about doing, then I think a career of biotech is great. And it's a very, very diverse industry with lots of different careers for lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds. The other thing I would say is biotech tends to hire from biotech a lot. And so if you are thinking about jumping in, once you get in, it can really offer a number of great career opportunities and you'll tend to get hired again and again and again by different biotech companies. And it is a growth industry. So it's an area that's being invested in. Right now is a tough time, but I'm confident the industry as a whole will bounce back. It might take another 12 months, 18 months, unfortunately, but I do think that the, the growth will continue. And so I would encourage everyone to look seriously at biotech. I think it's a great, robust industry. I think it's got some great opportunities and I think uh, it can be a, a great kind of place to learn and grow and develop and really kind of own, own much different skills for sure. Yeah, I agree. There is so much great opportunity in biotech. I think we are already seeing the rumblings that things are turning a little bit here in the fall. We're seeing more companies posting job opportunities. We're seeing some funding. So we're telling our candidates to stay strong. It's a tough time. I hope that's true, Karina. Last week, I got eight resume books from eight different companies stealing back. So unfortunately, we're not through the worst of it yet, I don't think. But hopefully, the greed shoots are there and companies are starting to get funded and we're turning the quarter. Yeah, me too. All right. So we talked at the beginning a little bit about how you got to where you are. And you had mentioned a little bit earlier about maybe your next steps. So where do you see your career going in the next 15 or so years? What's your ultimate destination, do you think? My hope is that Synlogic is wildly successful, that we take our first product and PKU to patients and really make a difference in those patients' lives. And that that allows us to then continue to move products through from our platform to a stage when we have multiple products on the market. Right? I look at a company like Howen Island. Howen Island's a fantastic company. They've done fantastically well. They developed a novel platform. They had their ups and their downs. And the number of times they, it looked like they might go through, but through perseverance and focus on great science, they're now doing fantastically well. They've got a whole bunch of marketed products. They're in a ton of different countries and they are helping a whole bunch of different people. So, I hope that is the story of Synlogic and I hope to be a part of that kind of going forward. If that's not the case, you know, I'd love to win big on the lottery and end up on a beach or something like that. That might be nice too. But in the absence of my $1.5 billion lottery win that didn't happen this week, I just turn up for work every day and hope to see Synlogic be successful. I didn't win that one either. <laughs> no. <laughs> if I did, I would share it with you both, but can't really help anyone out right now. I didn't win it. <laughs> Adam, one of my favorite questions to ask people What's the best book you've read recently? It can be fiction, nonfiction, anything you think everyone out there should be reading. Probably the most memorable one is I read all of the Harry Potter books recently to my daughter over a number of years. Actually, took a number of years, but my older daughter's 10 and she loves Harry Potter now. She's become obsessed. And it was probably about six months ago we finished the last book. And just having gone through the journey with her and seeing the joy it brought, brought me immense joy. So that's probably the most notable of them. And if you haven't read the Harry Potter books to a kid, it's a really good experience. That's going to be the best answer we get on the show. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> love that. Um, well, thank you so much, Adam. This was really enlightening. We so appreciate you coming on today. I'm delighted to join you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been great to see you both again. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Building Biotechs is brought to you by Recordomics Consulting. To find out more about Recordomics Consulting and how our fractional talent management consulting services are helping biotech and life sciences companies grow more efficiently and retain employees, 
visit www.recrudomics.com. And then make sure to search for Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recrudomics in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Recrudomics Consulting, thanks for listening.